good morning, everyone. It's a joy to gather with you all on this beautiful Lord's Day. Uh, please do turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 23. What do you believe about what is good, true, and beautiful? What's your opinion on the upcoming primary elections? What's your stance on the Second Amendment? What about economics? Is Bidenomics working? What about gender? What do you believe about identity or abortion? When would you say life begins? Just to pose those questions, let alone to a group this size, causes the temperature in the room just to increase just a touch. Immediately, convictions and opinions are formed and defended, sides determined, and battle commences. Such our fractious age. And I think it might be an understatement, but one that, of course, needs to be said, that we do live in a fractured society. It, it does seem like there are ever-appearing and ever-widening fault lines that divide our country, our cities, our families, and even our churches. And one could spend hours seeking to find the various sources and reasons for these fault lines, but suffice it to say that there seems to be no end to the diversity of opinions all around us. From COVID to sexuality to politics to theology to you name it, I think we have to agree that to some, we have to agree to some extent to the pluralist's observation. There is an endless plurality of opinions and beliefs about what is good, true, and beautiful. However, we don't need to agree with their conclusion. Namely, that truth, goodness, and beauty are completely subjective and, and, and up to each individual to decide for themselves what is true, good, and beautiful. In his book, in 2005, Soul Searching, sociolo sociologist Christian Smith published his findings from a study he performed seeking to identify the de facto religion of American teenagers. What do American teenagers believe about God, truth, goodness, and beauty? And in his findings, he concluded that by default, American teenagers hold not to some traditional confessional religion or denomination, but to what he coined moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, this unexamined but consistent religion consists of doctrines such as this. A, God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and various other world religions, hence moralistic. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself, hence therapeutic. And God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Hence the deism. That study is almost 20 years old. And can you imagine what the results would be today? Do you think the last 20 years have resulted in more unity and more orthodox Christian doctrine? Or would you say beliefs have multiplied? I, I would argue the latter. So what do we do? What hope is there for us? Are we just left to be in this 
fog of pluralism? Is there any revelation from above? And what about my sin? Is there anyone who will save me from this bondage of terror I feel in my own soul? Is there anyone who will address me directly to tell me that he's there, that he promises to lead me and to guide me and to go with me in all of life and to secure my soul? Well, in Exodus 23, 20 through 33, I believe we have answers to these questions. The Lord God, the maker of heaven and earth, has spoken. And not only has he spoken to the Israelites here at Mount Sinai, but he has, in fact, spoken to each of us. Necessarily, in his necessary, precious, sufficient, clear, and authoritative word, he has addressed us. So, would you please stand as you are able as I read Exodus 23, 20 through 33. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. And when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them. And break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God. And he will bless your bread and your water. And I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you. And will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Let's pray. God, would you bless your word as it goes out? Would you bless the preaching of your word? Would you Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Where else would we go, O oh God? You have the words of eternal life. So may these words be life to us and not death. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Exodus 23, 20 through 33, it serves as an epilogue to the book of the covenant that Ryan preached so faithfully last week. If Exodus 20 through 23 answers the question, how are the people of God to operate as the people of God? 
This section answers the question, where are they going? How will they get there? And how will the people of God relate to the nations around them when they get there? And the tone of this section is noticeably different from the the laws in the previous section. Here, God gets personal through the frequent usage of the singular pronouns I and you throughout. And it is in this personal relationship that Moses makes clear this is the distinguishing feature of the people of God. Do you ever feel far from the Lord? Does he ever feel distant? Does it ever feel like he is just so far off that he's completely lost touch with the trials and the sufferings that I experience right now? And remember, in the book of Exodus, this was written to the second generation of Israelites wandering in the desert. And as they wander in the desert, likely asking the same questions about feeling abandoned and forgotten by God, Moses gives them this history to remind them of who God is and what he has promised and what our response should be. So my aim this morning is to persuade you of this. The Lord is near to bless his people, and he demands our unwavering allegiance. The Lord is near to bless his people and demands our unwavering allegiance. And as we walk through this inspired text this morning, we will encounter three comforting realities to being the people of God. First, the nearness of the Lord. Second, the promises of the Lord. And finally, third, the victory of the Lord. First, the nearness of the Lord. The opening words of this section confront us with a startling and confusing statement. We are introduced to this mysterious character, and it's just an angel. Later in verse 23, the Lord calls this angel my angel. In fact, we are actually being reintroduced to this character who has been in the background throughout all the book of Exodus, often called the angel of the Lord. 17 times in the book of Genesis, six times in the book of Exodus, and 39 times in the entire Pentateuch, this angel is mentioned by Moses. Now, when I hear, or maybe when you hear the word angel, I'm sure countless images spring to mind, right? Winged beings, humanoid and dressed in white robes, maybe trumpets or or harps or something like that, flying around in the unseen world. And of course, there's there's biblical data informing those images that we have been, that come to mind and have been popularized in movies or shows or paintings. But the English word, angel, is derived from the Greek word, angelos, which is the Greek version of the Hebrew word, malach, which is used here. (laughs) And all those words mean is messenger, envoy, or one sent carrying a message. So the term used to describe this being is actually its function. Namely, angels are messengers who carry the message of God to its intended recipients, whether that be prophets or priests or kings or even teenage girls about to bear the Son of God, angels carry the message of God. And as we read here in Exodus 23 about God promising to send his angel, here messenger, it it becomes confusing 
pretty quickly about who this being actually is. Naturally, angels are seen and understood to be distinct from God. They come bearing the message of God, but are not God themselves. As in the phrase, don't shoot the messenger, we mean to communicate that the messenger is separate from the message and the message sender. But Moses describes this angel, this messenger, as the angel of the Lord, my angel. This angel seems to be functioning almost as the very presence of God himself. Again, this being we've seen before. Remember, back in Exodus 3, Moses described the burning bush experience this way. Just listen carefully. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called out out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Who appeared to Moses on the mountain in the burning bush? The angel of the Lord. Who was it that saw Moses drawing near and called to him? The Lord. Who did this voice identify himself as? The God of Moses' fathers. And who was it? Moses sought to hide his face from God himself. So back in Exodus 23, the Lord promises to send his angel before the people. But the main role of this angel isn't just to bear a message, to communicate with the people, but rather to lead, to guard, to protect, to be obeyed, to forgive sins, and most pointedly, bears the very name of the Lord. So just like in Exodus 3, this angel bears the characteristics of God himself. So who is this guy? Commentators throughout the ages have debated endlessly on whether or not this is just your standard run-of-the-mill angelic being or some higher angelic being or maybe even some preform of the incarnate Christ. Those debates, while interesting, can, can run the temptation of missing the point. What is Moses' point? God has promised that wherever he goes, wherever his people go, he goes too. The nearness of God and his divine presence to bless is pervasive in this text and throughout the entire book of Exodus. Just after giving the Ten Commandments to the people, God makes this incredible promise in Exodus 20, 24. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. When God first appeared to Moses and commanded him to go and speak to Pharaoh, he did not comfort or assure Moses with the signs and the plagues in Exodus 3. Who am I, Moses says, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God said, I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. See, it's the nearness of God. It's the presence 
of God that God himself gives to comfort Moses and assure him that when God goes before you, the outcome is certain. And this is the goal of the entire exodus. Freeing Israel, getting them out of Egypt was just part of it. Bringing them to himself was the goal. Exodus 19.4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Remember the context of this passage. The Israelites have been brought out of Egypt. They have crossed the Red Sea. They went through those wilderness grumblings and have arrived here at the mountain of the Lord, where God spoke directly to them from the mountain, giving them the Ten Commandments. In chapters 20 through 23, the Lord, through Moses, gives the people a functioning case law, showing the moral principles of the Ten Commandments applied to everyday life. And that law is the expression of the character of God, his character, his presence expressed to the people in everyday life. And now the Lord is promising that he will not leave them. They are not yet in the promised land, but as they go, he goes with them. What a comforting thought it would be to these weary, terrified, displaced people. And even better news that our Lord Jesus made similar promises to you in John 14. Jesus says to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. So God's blessed presence, it will not remain on the mountain, but will go with his people. Just like Christ could not remain on earth, but it was in fact better for us that he went so that we could receive his spirit. And what an unspeakable comfort it is that God is not distant. He is not far off. He is not the detached, disengaged, impersonal God of moralistic, therapeutic deism. He is near. But there's an inescapable reality to being in the presence of a holy God. It's dangerous. Like the Israelites at the foot of the mountain, terrified of the fire and the cloud, so are all who come near to such a holy God. It's certainly safer to picture God as more of a butler in the sky, far away, unless I need him. But that is not the God we serve. Our God is near, and it's his very nearness to us that makes us and distinguishes us as the very people of God. This is not just any gathering. This is not just any meeting of people. But this morning, we experience the gathering of the people of God, and where the people of God are, is God's word, and where God's word is, God himself is. And that God has made incredible promises to you and to me. Number two, the promises of the Lord. Serving as an epilogue to the book of the covenant means that we see covenantal language throughout this text. And in any covenant between God and man, there are promises and obligations, blessings and curses. And the Lord has promised that he will go before the people, but he expects and requires 
the people to do just two things, trust and obey. Trust and obey. Every covenant, including the covenant between us and Christ, requires trust that God will do all that he says he will do and obedience to all of his commands. Remember, back in John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Now, one would be tempted, especially here in the Old Testament, to understand this purely as transactional, like an employee or an employer. Do this, and you'll receive this. If you obey, then I will love you and fight for you. But that would be misunderstanding the point entirely and misunderstanding the biblical logic. This is not that type of relationship. We do not obey God in order to put him in our debt. None of the promises of God are wages to be paid to those whom he owes. We can never and could never put God in our debt. Rather, the covenantal promises are more like a father promising to catch his son as he's about to jump into the pool. The boy is nervous, likely scared, unsure. And the father, whom he loves and trusts, and has, who has caught him every time before, he just puts out his hands, once again promising to catch him when he jumps. That's how we are to read the promises and obligations in the Bible. By remembering what God has done for you in the past. For the Israelites here in Exodus 23, they have seen the wonders of God on display, overpowering Pharaoh in the plagues, culminating in the provision of atonement for the Passover lamb and protection from the angel of death, the miraculous delivery from Pharaoh's army by the crossing of the Red Sea, and his miraculous provision of their basic needs of food and water and protection in the wilderness wanderings on the way to Mount Sinai, and now the gracious giving of the law and how to live for you. Remember all that God has done for you already in the person and work of our Lord Christ Jesus. In Christ, you have had all your sins paid for. You have been set free from the bondage of sin. You have been reconciled to the Father with whom you now have peace because of the cross of Christ. Your sins have been cast away and you now experience forgiveness and newness of life. He has done a marvelous thing. And because of all that he's done in the past, like a father having caught his son every time, we can trust that he will do what he says in the future. And look what he promises in this text to the Israelites. Just a barrage of promises. He will guard and lead the people from Mount Sinai to the land he promised 400 years earlier to their father Abraham, verse 20. He will fight for them as the enemy of their enemies and will blot them out, verse 22 and 23. He will bless their bread and their water, verse 25. There will be no sickness. Listen to this. None can miscarry or be barren in this land where the Lord dwells with his people, verse 26. He will send terror and hornets and confusion against the Canaanites, verse 27. He will not clear out the land in one big push, but will do it incrementally in order to allow the people to grow into their land, verse 30. What a kindness and wisdom that is from our God. He will make their borders secure, and he will stretch 
and it will stretch from the very Red Sea they just crossed all the way to the great Euphrates River. Verse 31. It's reminiscent of Eden, isn't it? This land, a, a beautiful, fruitful, abundant place, but it is that way because that's where God is, and he dwells and cares for his people. All these promises the Lord makes to his people, and simply on the one condition, they trust and obey him. Do they trust that he will do these things? Or when they get there, will they rely on their own strength to accomplish these things? Will they trust that his ways are best, that the law that he prescribed to them in the book of the covenant was not restrictive or archaic, but actually for their good and flourishing in the land that he promises to give them? Will they trust and will they obey? And as members of this new covenant, you and I, we are presented with the same question. Will we trust and obey? In Christ, God has not dealt with us, with our sins, as they deserve. Like the Amorites, or the Hittites, and the Jebusites, we deserve to be blotted out. But he has not blotted us out, but rather, he has, what has he blotted out? Our sin. He has removed it as far as the east is from the west, and remembers it no more. And after the glorious reality of salvation secured for us in Christ, we now have received this incredible gift of the Spirit. If the Israelites thought the God on the mountain or in their tent was terrifying, imagine their shock that you and I now have the God in us, <laughs> dwelling within us by his Spirit. And now the Lord makes promises to you. He promises to strengthen you, to supply you with every need, to illuminate this word to you so that the message of the cross may not be foolishness, but the very power of God. He promises to hear and answer your prayers, to work all things for your good, to forgive your sins that you may never be separated from the Father's love, that there may not be any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he promises to bring you to himself in the fullest sense to raise you from the dead, to make a new, glorious resurrection body to dwell with him forever. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? Do you trust that in such a way that you will obey him? We don't trust and obey God in order to belong to him. No. Because we belong to God, we trust and obey him. That is biblical logic. That is gospel Logic, as the Heidelberg Catechism so beautifully says in, his, in the first answer, because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Because of what God has done in the past, we can trust him to do what he said he will do in the future and live according to his ways to flourish in this life. And ultimately, what has God promised to you? What does he promise to the Israelites and then ultimately to you? Victory. Number three, the victory of the Lord. Recall the promises made to Abraham, which of course serve as the backdrop to the events in Exodus. The Lord promised to make Abraham the father of many, many descendants, descendants to multiply them greatly and to bring them to the land 
he had promised them. And at the beginning of Exodus, if you remember, we see the descendants of Abraham are in fact numerous. But they're in the wrong land. (laughs) But as we have seen, God keeps his promises. So Exodus so far has been the story of God fulfilling that promise to Abraham by getting them out of Egypt and on the road to the promised land. But the land they are headed to is not empty, but filled with people who are in rebellion to God. And the Lord will act to fulfill his promise to Abraham and bring judgment on the people who reject him. Exodus 23, 33, you shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. The Lord understands the temptations of our world. He knows that if allowed to coexist, the Israelites will be led away from God and serve the pagan Canaanite gods. So in order to protect the Israelites, he commits to defeating their enemies. It is God who fights for his people. This is a progression from the wilderness wanderings of Exodus 15 and 17, where God simply just protected his people on the way in the wilderness. But now, God will fight for them to secure a land that he promised their forefathers. But the reason for his fighting and the result of the fighting are the same. The Lord requires from his people unwavering allegiance. This God is a jealous God, as he said in the second commandment. He will have no other rival. You can only serve one God, and our God, the Lord, demands exclusivity. We are tempted every day to turn our eyes away from the sovereign Lord and to any and all idols. Like the moralistic therapeutic deist described at the beginning, a God created the world, could be any. Could be the God of the Bible. Could be Allah. Could be Marduk or Baal. They're all the same anyway, right? This cannot be. The Bible won't allow us to make such relative and pluralistic claims. For the Bible makes exclusive claims. If Caesar is Lord, worship him. If Pharaoh is Lord, worship him. But if God is Lord, He is worthy to be praised alone. And which God has won the day? The Israelites heard Moses sing, probably in full voice after the Red Sea crossing, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. His is the victory. The Lord has conquered in the past, and he is declaring to his people, I will continue to conquer according to my promises for your good. So trust me, obey me. And now, you and I, we bear witness to an even greater victory. Caesar is not Lord. The federal government is not Lord. Your boss is not Lord. I am not the Lord. But there is one who has conquered fully. There is one who has defeated the greatest enemy of all, sin and death. There is one who brings the presence of God so close 
that it dwells within us. There is one who secures such breathtaking promises that are yes and amen now for us because of his victory. So Christians, our cry is now and forever, Christ is Lord. Christ Jesus has redeemed you from the pit. He defeated our enemy. He paid for our sins. He reconciled us to the Father. How could we not now trust him who works all things for our good? So turn to him. Trust in him. Rest in him and his victory. Rely on him. Put your faith in him. And he will bring you home to the very promised land. And you will find that he is and always will be faithful to every promise he makes. Let's pray. Oh God, we look to you. You are a great God. And you have done marvelous things. Our soul magnifies the Lord. He who is mighty has done such great things. God, I pray that Christ would be glorified. That he would be magnified. That his is the victory. That the circumstances of our lives would not blind us to all that you have done and have promised to do for us in Christ. All of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. It's in him we have fullness of life forevermore. Oh God, we believe. Help our unbelief. May this word dwell in us richly. May it be power from on high. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.